Today we talk with Jay Richland, Director General for Western Canada at the David Suzuki Foundation. We all know the David Suzuki Foundation as Canada's leader in environmental activism. Their vision is that we act every day on the understanding that we are one with nature. When I read that Jay leads Western Canada, overseeing work in Alberta and British Columbia, two provinces that I often feel are paradox provinces when it comes to environmentalism, I knew I wanted to speak with Jay. What kind of adaptability does it take to work in two such different landscapes? How do you stay motivated and avoid burnout when you're focusing on something like environmental activism? And better yet, what are some of those nuanced moments that feel like legacy when it comes to saving our planet? This is what we talk about in today's episode. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome, Jay. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child lead a movement? Hello, Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make or break moments that make social impact so impactful. Good morning, Jay. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Rebecca. Good morning. We're excited to have you here today. No, it's fine. It's funny, right? Like I had two minutes before we were supposed to start and I went, you know um, what kombucha is? The drink? Yep. Yep. So there's a bit of a kombucha making factory here at our house. And I specifically asked, I was like, are all these bottles in the fridge? Can I drink out of any one of them? And I was told yes. So I took a bottle out and I opened the top and kombucha went like a volcano every yeah. all around and then i heard your text dinging i'm like oh <laughs> anyway if i'm a little discombobulated it's because i'm covered in fizzy sticky drink kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> um i got really into kombucha when i had mono because mm. i someone had told me that it could help just sort of like bring my music and i felt it did like for some reason i would drink it and i would just you know had more energy or yeah, yeah. Mm. it's supposed to be good yeah and we've got lots of it it goes into the same bottles that homemade beer go into so that's <laughs> actually that's a pretty unpleasant surprise when you're thinking you're getting one and you get the other I will, oh anyway. no <laughs> jay is the director general of western canada for the david suzuki foundation and when i reached out to jay it was because of something very specific when i had been looking at incredible people to interview i saw jay's title and I looked a little bit further and I noticed that he managed both programming and work of British Columbia and Alberta and when I noticed that I immediately thought wow what a paradox of geographic regions to work in. Jay tell me a little bit about your work. Well so as folks may know the David Suzuki Foundation uh, has been around since about 1990 uh, and we focus on looking for ways to help people live within the bounds of nature. I mean ultimately we want people to recognize and act on the fact that we're all part of nature and we need to do that uh, really seriously if we're going to have a long-term future. So my work um, looks at the you know, environmental issues that are taking place in Western Canada, uh, solutions to those environmental issues, how they intersect with other social and economic issues, and really looking at ways of how can we design a society and run a society that understands that nature has limits and those limits and boundaries are important 
if we're going to continue to have a good quality of health and a good quality of life. So everything from forestry to oil and gas to fisheries uh, to municipal design and the operations of cities. Um, so a whole wide range of things, um, you know, from science to economics to social policy, really. Man, it's actually kind of interesting to think about it that way, because you're also when you just said, like, it's really about making sure that we have a place to live in a yeah. healthy way. Like it's a way of sustaining life. Right. It's not yeah. I don't think people think about it in that context. It's funny. I, I've thought about it that way for so long that it is sometimes hard to remember that that is, uh, you know, not necessarily the way everyone comes at it. One thing that has been interesting, I would say, is the pandemic and the whole COVID-19 has really made people start to think about what is the essential element that makes my life worth living? You know, is it money or is it safe place to live and, and food and, and, you know, having people who I care about knowing that they're healthy and well? It's actually helping that conversation a little bit. Um, you know, not that I would have wished for it to come about this way, but, but I think people are taking a minute to, th to think again about what, are, what is quality of life? What is well-being? And, and for so long, you'd have that conversation in the economy. People would say, well, we've got to have a strong economy or else. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just been an opportunity to rethink that a bit. So it's, um, you know, you have to take those chances when you get them for whatever reason they come along. Oh, absolutely. I, it's actually, I was talking with um, a colleague recently and she works in HR and was talking about how when people go back to work, she thinks that a lot of companies are going to be thinking about it in that way because, you know, things like work-life balance are going to be more of a priority, but not just work-life balance. It's about having that present time at home and having that present mm -hmm. time in their personal lives where they can be fully present in what's going on around them. And I guess that includes the outdoors and being able to enjoy being outside. Yeah, well, and people have, I mean, during the lockdowns, uh, such as they are, yeah. going outdoors is almost one of the only things you can do sometimes, right? To get a bit of fresh air, or it's the safest place to be out and not have as much transmission risk. So there's been a lot of new appreciation for the outdoors. Um, people really noticed early on the change in the quality of air with not as much industrial activity, car driving, like that is, that shocked people, I think. Um, the only time I remember people noticing things was uh, like that was after 9-11 um, when there were no planes in the skies for several days and air quality improved really rapidly. And so it also gives people that sense, hey, maybe this isn't totally out of our control. You know, so often, you'll think, oh, whether, you know, climate change, I can't do anything about that, or, you know, pollution, I can't do it. But really, it is within society's control, maybe not you or me by ourselves, certainly. But as a, as a community, we can make decisions that change our environment for the better, and also then make our health better and our quality of life better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you think about that, literally, as we're talking, I'm like, I got green guilt, you know what I mean? Like, and the example I always use is, where was it with my husband and I? It was K-Cups. I'm like, we can't get a Keurig because like of the K-Cups. And yeah. like the K-Cups are destroying the world. Like they're destroying the world. And, um, and so he took a video of himself, a selfie video in front of himself in front of my car being like, I would just like to point out that like you're out here with your car. Like, come on, yeah. get it together. Yeah. So do you ever... Um, like, what do you think is the role that the green guilt plays and how much of this conversation is about people's specific lifestyles? Yeah. Well, you know, 
like most hypocrites, I contradict myself all the time. And, and people make huge and important choices that affect how much environmental footprint they have. And they make those choices based on either their own awareness or some combination of what their family needs and what they need. And that is just the way people are. I don't expect every individual to be a perfect environmentalist because half the time we don't even know what that means, right? Like some, some things that we try to do end up having unintended consequences. And, you know, even the idea that we recycle plastics, you know, there, there's pros and cons to that. Right. And, and so I try very, very hard never to judge people at that level. You know, I encourage people to make the choices that they think they can make that will help the environment if they want to talk about trade-offs or like the running the car versus the K-cups, you know, I'll have those conversations. But ultimately, I think what's important is if people take the time to make some changes as an expression of their concern, that in and of itself is really valuable. And so I don't care if you make the perfect choices. I don't care if you make some wrong choices. I have a motorboat. I love it. It's not the most environmentally friendly. You know, I paid for the most fuel efficient engine I could get. And I put the old one to bed properly and I take the little extra, those are extra costs, right? Those are, those are big extra costs actually, but I still run a motorboat and I love it. And, and so I also bike to work. I don't take a car anywhere. I bike everywhere I go. So, you know, you, you kind of do your own internal math, but ultimately we are all part of a society that makes certain choices sort of inevitable. Before this pandemic, everybody thought they had to commute to work every day for the most part. All of a sudden, a whole lot of society is going to take a step back and think, do we have to force that? Does that really have to happen? Same thing, you know, we made choices in the past around the content of our newspapers. Um, you know, the, the British Columbia forest industry fought against recycled content. They said, that's never going to happen. No one's going to want crappy paper made out. And then, you know, in the middle of that, where they were pushing back on government, this is back in the like, late 70s. California mandated right off the bat, 25% of every newspaper made or, or read in California must be recycled content. That's the fifth largest economy in the world when California does something like that. And all of a sudden the BC forest industry had to scramble. You know, environmentalists have been there yapping at them to start doing recycled content for years. No way. But then all of a sudden the market changed because somewhere consciousness had raised, awareness had raised, or there was the opportunity. So things go in fits and starts like that. But those, that one decision by the state of California did way more than you and I recycling our grocery bags, right? Mm -hmm. But it was a product of the same kind of awareness, the same shift in humans' tolerance for certain types of waste. So I think these things go together. I don't expect that we could change the world well enough by just going around person to person and trying to make them change their light bulbs or, or insulate their house better. On the other hand, if we have enough awareness from people that that's important, governments make it a priority, and then we put policies in place like retrofitting homes for energy efficiency, coming out of COVID, we may actually see some real investments in that. It'll put some people back to work. It'll make a huge difference in the way our cities and towns their carbon footprint over 20 years. But if you just went to everybody in the neighborhood and said, I want you to upgrade your house, I want you to upgrade your house, and everyone's got to lay out five grand or 10 grand, who can do it, right? Like one person out of 20. So 
I really think it's that combo. And I don't have a lot of time for green guilt, to be quite honest. I work and live in a community where a lot of people like to put that on other people. They don't get very far with me because I grew up in a place where nobody thought this way. You know, I, I, I come from Southern Ohio and, and it's, you know, in many ways, like a rural part of Alberta where people live on the land, they take care of their own stuff. And, you know, they're not generally wasteful people because you need things and you got to use them carefully, mm -hmm. but they're not sort of on the cutting edge of lefty progressive thinking either. Mm -hmm. And yet some of them are the most staunch environmentalists I've ever met because they actually live in the environment. They give a crap about it and they maybe get their food from it or their job is dependent on it. And so I find it pretty... Mm important to try and draw those connections instead of dividing people by putting them on a ranking scale of how you know how environmental their daily practices are because you could pick me apart you could pick you apart you could pick david yeah. suzuki himself apart if you wanted to um because we're all you know we're all walking hypocrites what can we do totally <laughs> i mean a couple things like i was just thinking about as you were talking is one is you're right i think there's a lot of assumptions made about um, small town, rural demographics and, yep. you know, take care of your own. And, but the fact of the matter is, is like, they don't waste, like yeah. there's there, a, it's harder to get things like, yeah. you know, you're in a remote environment. Um, yeah. likely they're putting good money into quality things because they don't, they want to have it for a long time. And it's kind of, it's almost that intergenerational relationship with consumerism as well. Right. Yeah. You want like, things to last and be able to pass yeah. them on a bit. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I know. I don't know how many people have cleaned out, you know, their grandparents' house or, uh, yeah, and really gone through the, how, like, tinfoil was recycled, like, and not recycled as in thrown in the recycling, like, it was reused, reused. like, yeah, yeah, it was reused, like, you know, the plastic bags were tied up and, and saved, and then they didn't get more plastic bags. It, it was definitely yeah. a different relationship versus, yeah. you know, the consumerism of, of green goods and, um, and the purchase of, of still, you know, going out and buying green goods versus yeah. reusing it. I, I'm not an authority on this, so I don't know which one is more practical, but um, it is definitely a different mindset, right? Well, you go back to the, you know, what was the fundamental, uh, coming out of the 1970s, the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. That wasn't supposed to be a nice, big, happy pot and you just pick your choice. Yeah. It was supposed to start at reduce and then go to reuse and then if all else fails recycle and of course the way our consumer society works we just started stamping recycling logos on everything so you could still go out and buy everything you wanted you just had to toss it in a bin that had a you know a blue bin and that was never going to work right like if you were on the in inside of it or even i remember you know my grandmother who was like well you know that's just waste, right? Like it's still waste, you know? And my, my wife's grandmother had a saying, she was born in 1901 and she had, people seem to have more money than brains, you know? And like what she had lived through and watched was the, the shift from a society where people were self-reliant and did what you described of, of hanging on to things and finding a way to reuse them to a society that consciously went out and tried to buy as much stuff as it could um, to keep the economy running and to make people feel like they'd achieved some level of, of success. Mm. I think that right now we're getting an opportunity to rethink that. I don't think it's going to be a magic moment where it all gets fixed. Um, but some people have found a lot of satisfaction in having a much quieter, much less consumptive lifestyle for the last few months. 
here I'm laughing because I'm like that's me I was with my mom yesterday and uh, we were talking about weekends starting to get booked up in the summer yeah. because things are reopening and that's why I was like no like COVID's not over like I'm I'm still I'm still living that slow pace of life like yeah. I'm all about you know a coffee at 11 30 on a Sunday at home like that is that is it's what good. I'm about now so it, I think you're right. I think people are definitely, there's that resistance to go back to the way things were. And, yeah. um, and I think that that gratification that comes from, um, from, like you said, buy, buying things that project a sense of success, like it's changing. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's that, you know, busy, go, go, go mentality, I think has really adjusted our perspectives on what we're looking for in life. Who knows if it'll stay? I hope it does. Well, there will be there will be some things like I say, if you take opportunities like this, and again, this is where it switches the, the you know, from what you and I might be able to do mm-hmm. to what uh, as a society on a larger scale, we might be able to do. So if governments say, okay, we need to inject cash into the economy, we need to get people back to work. Uh, we also need to remember that we're in the middle of a biodiversity and a climate crisis right now. And it was going on before COVID hit. So how do we spend that money in a way that does both those things? And so I, I know like in Alberta, there is money going towards restoring old uh, gas and oil well areas where they had lines cut through the forest for exploration. You know, they call them seismic lines and, and you start to replant and restore those. You bring back the habitat for the caribou, which really need it. Um, and you're putting people to work. Same as we mentioned a minute ago about retrofitting buildings. Like if you, you could see where provinces could funnel money into retrofit programs that would put people to work immediately because the technology is there. You don't need to invent the stuff. We know how to make buildings more energy efficient. Um, and you put yourself on a whole new track in terms of how much carbon you need to run your society mm-hmm. for the rest of time. Um, so are there examples of that? Is it happening yet? Like have you yeah, seen? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is starting to happen. So the federal government has given money to BC and Alberta mm. to do some of those old oil and gas well reclamation. So there's oh. you know, there's lots of problems with you know that industry not cleaning up its own mess. Mm. But government has seen the opportunity to say, okay, if we're gonna have to inject money out there anyway, um, this is this one of the sectors that is hurting right now financially let's put them to work doing something that has a long-term benefit and corrects some long-standing errors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, do I wish that the industry had paid for its own cleanup as it was supposed to? Yes. Mm -hmm. But given the opportunity, I'll, I'll take it, right? Like I'll, I'll say, okay, government, go ahead, put the money in there. Let's get this done. Mm -hmm. Um, And hopefully we tighten up the leaks uh, going forward so that there's fewer of them. And I mean that Mm -hmm. from regulatory leaks as well as actual physical leaks of, you know, natural gas. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously you're super passionate about this. Where does that come from for you? you I know, mean, and comes- I see that Joe, I'm like, obviously you're super passionate about this and you're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, you know, some people do it because it's a job, but I, uh, I, I do love the outdoors and the outdoor world. Um, plants and animals. I've, I've always just felt a connection to being out in nature. I, I grew up in a small rural town. I spent lots of summers on the Great Lakes with my grandparents. And, um, and, and so it's always been a place where I found comfort and happiness. I enjoy most animals more than most people. Uh, <laughs> not, uh, not exclusively, but, uh, you know, and, and I also have a really strong sense of it's like a weird combination of common sense and injustice 
where it's like, why on earth would you treat people or the environment that way? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me, right? Like, and, and because they're powerless, they don't get to say anything back. So, so my, my passion for it really came from that. I have, I have some privilege, I have some power, I have an education, and I have this awareness that, that, you know, trees and fish don't get to vote. They don't get to, you know, make economic decisions. Yet, we really do need them. And so I've been fired up about that for a long time. My past uh, work included a lot of things on, you know, both sort of kind of military spending and foreign affairs and on environment. And uh, over the years, it led me here. And I've been at the Davis Suzuki Foundation for almost 15 years now. And uh, yeah, I still regularly get jazzed up. Sometimes it's like, because I'm pissed off, <laughs> but, but sometimes it's because I just really, I see the opportunities. I see the people out there that care. Um, and I see that we could do it. You know, I don't feel like this has got to be this big polarizing thing. Sometimes it is, there's just no way around it. If, if something is about to be destroyed and it's going to stay destroyed for many lifetimes of humans, then yes, I'm going to get in arms a bit and, and push back. Yeah. On the other hand, if it's sort of like, well, this is the way we've always kind of done things, but there really is a better way, then I've got time, right? I can work mm -hmm. with people, I can get to know people. And I mean, the David Suzuki Foundation is also rooted in activism. You know, I think we're at an interesting time right now where also companies are playing a role of activism, yeah. especially in the consumer products, which I wanna talk about, not now in a little bit, but what do you think is the role of activism for you as a leader in this space? There's two things. There's a activism sometimes is the only thing that pushes open the door and gets the conversation started. Whether it's the destruction of the Clackwet rainforest or the Black Lives Matter, sometimes people on the streets or people gathering by the hundreds or thousands, it's the only thing that gets the attention. The other part of it for me is trying to always understand how not to undermine activism, even though activism doesn't always have a direction to it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, activism can get awareness, can rise people up in the streets, but not every activist movement has a structure that says, okay, and here's how we get things to change. Mm. So in a big organization like mine, we can find ways to utilize that passion to really help those movements grow and then focus that power. And, and that's amazing when that works. The risk is, of course, the big, well-established groups can also kind of assume that power and then just sort of diffuse it into study groups or, you know, royal commissions or whatever you have that, that actually takes that power away from the people who generated it. So I'm, I'm in an organization that is well-established. We're a federal registered charity. Um, so there's certain things we can't do. You know, we can't directly go after specific politicians. It's just not allowed as charities, but, but the people in the streets can. Um, so how do we play that role of both helping the activists, right? We have long established connections, we have resources. So, you know, when Greta Thunberg came to Montreal and to Vancouver, we did a ton to pay for the sound systems, to make sure there was good security, to, you know, help transportation. But we tried not to get in the frame because the youth activists were, were really leading and we just wanted to help. Mm. Um, and then at the same time you think, okay, you know, if they're calling for, you know, tear down the entire smash the oil and gas industry, 
And the David Suzuki Foundation doesn't actually want to be in that position with the people of Alberta. I don't want to come to Alberta and say, I'm here to put everybody out of work. It's not a very good conversation. Do I believe that that industry has to phase out? Yes. But there's a lot of conversations about how to do that in a way that's respectful of the people who are working there because it's the way they figured out to support their families or because they thought it was the right thing to do when they got into it and they really care about it. So how do I have the conversation with those people without kind of undermining the power and the passion that the activists on the street are, mm-hmm. are, are having? And so for me, having come from that activism point myself and now being in a much more established organization, that's one of my interesting pieces with activism right now. Uh, and the Suzuki Foundation has made a really con- conscious effort to say we are going to go out and support movements. Even if we don't control them, we don't get to tell them where to go and how to act. We need them. They need to be out there. And we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers, clearly. So, so yeah, I mean, we, but I work with companies sometimes, too. So it's a, really, it's a really fascinating time for me to be in that space, especially with activism right now having a really high swing. Like before the pandemic hit, you think about those Fridays for Future and the global movement Greta had started and you think, okay, that has got to keep going. Um, Same time, now we have a whole new series of issues which have come and gained their power in the Black Lives Matter movement and everything connected to that also critically vital, has to keep going, right? So finding that way to work with those movements and to keep things going forward and to figure out what your own space is, where can I actually do the things that make a difference? That's kind of, honestly, that's, it's kind of terrifying at a certain level, but it's also really energized me again at a certain Mm. level. Which part of it is terrifying? Well, terrifying is like, wow, what if I've become part of the problem? What if I'm one of the guys sitting there stopping change or sapping off the energy from all these young people to like get meetings with important people, right? Like how do I make sure that I'm not in the way of the change that needs to happen and the change that I've always wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so rechecking my own place in the movement, so to speak. And um, you know, as a leader, as a person who controls hiring and firing decisions, uh, you know, influences millions of dollars of spending by the David Suzuki Foundation um, goes out and raises funds. I, I, I raise a lot of money for the work that we do. It, should I be taking that money? Should I be helping somebody else get that money? You know, so that those are, you know, those are kind of existential in their own way. Right. And in, in sort of, am I, am I doing the right thing by keeping on? Um, yeah. You know, and the, the exciting side, I think, is a bit more obvious. I got to spend a day with Greta when she was in Vancouver. It was the most incredible thing. And I think you and I talked about this earlier. I, I use the word bridging. That's my favorite yeah. word and that concept of like us versus them and how it's really about breaking that that concept down and saying like, no, it's, yeah. you know, there's more than two categories here. There's more than just, um, there's more than one way of doing things. And, and choosing to be the bridge. And you said something that really struck me and I wrote it down and it was, it's easy to get comfortable in the bridging place because it's easy. Yeah, it is and it isn't. It's funny. And you know what? Thank you, by the way. In that little conversation, last week was a dark week for me. We've had some layoffs at the Davis Suzuki Foundation. I had to let go of some people who I've worked with for over a decade. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I had been struggling with a bunch of these thoughts, but our conversation about bridging. Yeah. Thank you, by the way, you helped. 
draw me back up and set my eyes back on the prize bit. <laughs> um, but it is true. And it's funny, bridging is like, you don't have to go all activists, all tear it down. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to go all corporate. Oh, these people are all crazy. Um, and maybe those are easier in some ways because there, you don't have as much hard work in the middle. Um, but that, that space where you haven't had to fully throw your hat in the ring one way or another, it, it can be easy, right? It can be like, Oh, well, I'm, I'm trying to have the conversations. I'm trying to build the bridges. I'm, and are you, or are you trying to, you know, keep from having to do something really hard? And I, I don't think, I don't think it's always one or the other. I think it's great to keep challenging yourself on that question though. I, you know what, I'm, I'm really glad that I caught you in that place because I think those places are where we're most reflective and yeah. where we're most challenged. And what I heard when you said that was it's easy to be liked by a lot of different people. Yeah. Right? That's like true. when you're on one side or the other, you're choosing to put yourself out and to warrant reactions, right? Yeah. And to be, to be willing to be that target of reactions. And yeah. whether that's, you know, in a family circle, you know, in your amongst neighbors, at the boardroom table, you're in a place where you're going to be reacted to in a way that might be terrifying. And something that we talked about was like authenticity, being yourself. Some, a piece of advice someone gave to me was don't lose yourself in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really true. And of course, as a, you know, as a senior manager of a place like the Davis Suzuki foundation, I have a, a responsibility to an organization as well as to myself. So I can't be just me if that's not, what the Davis Suzuki Foundation demands of me. I, it just, uh, you know, there's always a little bit of tension there. Fortunately, I work someplace that I feel really strongly identified with and generally fairly comfortable with. Um, but, you know, in, in, in the flip side of that easy piece that we talked about, it is sometimes hard, the bridging space, because you often have to have really uncomfortable conversations with both groups. Mm -hmm. Like, I've had many, many days where people who come from the community that I identify with, that environmental science, social change community, who are like, what the hell are you talking to those people for? You are a sellout or you are this or that. And, and I take that seriously. I don't let it shut me down. Um, but I have my moments with myself where I'm thinking, okay, is that true? You know? And, and so, yeah, I've got people who are, sometimes nicer to me from the industry side than my environmental colleagues are. But, you know, maybe that's because they want something from me or maybe it's just because they happen to be nice people who work for an industry. And, and there's something there that we can build on. And so I have, I have had those moments where it isn't easy being the bridge because people on both sides dislike you. Um, but, but often it is that place where it's kind of like, well, I can talk to you and I can talk to you. And I, I don't have to be, tell anybody that they're totally whack. But I also, you know, I have to find that way to maintain the pressure. And, and I feel like it's done beneficial things for both elements. I, like I've been able to speak truth to power, if you will, in some rooms that I would not have ever gotten into if I had just been smashing at the glass all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I've also come back into my own community and said, guys, gals, we need to give our heads a shake. We're not, we're not seeing this clearly. And there's some legitimate issues over here that we just don't understand. And, and we're, we're being unfair or we're being kind of blinders on. Uh, and I hope that that's helped on, on both sides, right? I, I feel like it has. And that's what I, you know, in that whole bridging space, I, I have to feel like 
I'm creating some change on both sides mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm really helping the, the conversation progress somewhere um, that it's not just creating lots of nice talk shops. That's, I think that's when you have to really stop and pause and say, okay, I've been, you know, I've been the driving force behind this multi-stakeholder group for five years now. And we're still talking about the same damn things that we were talking about four and a half years ago. Right. <laughs> and, and that's maybe the test point. Is it causing people to go into new places where they're a bit uncomfortable on all sides? Um, yeah. I love that. I like, honestly, it's when, as soon as someone says working group to me, I'm like, ah, like, what does that mean? It means, and I have biases towards that language. Group. Yeah. Like the not working group, <laughs> like the meeting agenda and action review group. Like it's, yeah. oh. you know, I, and I acknowledge that those are biases that I have and is also like a very millennial thing to say. I, you know, I just left that meeting right before we got on the phone. That's hilarious. The uh, meeting review, the, what did you call it? The agenda yeah, item review? review group. That's so good. I have to take that one down. <laughs> I always compare it to like a university project group. Like whether you're, you know, you're in an MBA or an undergrad, um, you, you're like, okay, guys, we got to get together and get this project done. And like if every meeting could be run that way, because their meetings yeah. like, hey, did you, how did that go? Did it go well? Yeah. What are you struggling with? Okay, let's get together, talk about it really quickly. Okay, move on. I'll I feel like yeah and it's you know i really yeah i think there's there's something there that i think the business community could adopt <laughs> in, in well you know and i think the you know the environmental community too uh we have plenty of that and, and sometimes it's because as a charity we don't have access to all the levers of power yeah. like i can't i can't make a decision for shell or whoever to to have a different business plan um <laughs> And so trying to find those ways where you have ways to take action, get people moving on their skills that can be utilized to create change and only have that meeting to check in and help people get over what's got them stuck. That's <laughs> we had also talked about something that I often think about is, and it was actually, I was speaking with a friend who's very involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. Yep. And she was saying how, you know, she recognizes that environmentalism is, is important, but for her, it's an issue of privilege. And so we sort of had this conversation about it. And what we were, what I resonate with is there's certain places that I've traveled where people really care, like places like Vancouver, Victoria, Tofino, Maui, even in Alberta, you look at like Canmore Banff area versus Edmonton, right? It's only a four hour drive away. And Part of what I think is those places are, are places people want to live, want to travel, want to own property in because yeah. they're beautiful. And yeah. so I often think protecting your own, right? You're protecting your own space and land because you want to be able to continue enjoying it. I perceive that sometimes it's like, it's a rich person's problem. What you've talked a little bit about is that, yeah, it's a rich person's problem, but also the flip side to that. Like, what is the flip side to that? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the flip side to that, there, there's sort of two different elements to it that I think, you know, are interesting to me. One is that when you start talking about the burden of environmental problems, other than kind of deforestation and losing wilderness, it is hugely on, on poor communities with less power. So they're often gonna be BIPOC communities, indigenous communities uh, in, in Canada, black communities in the United States, where that's where the incinerator goes. That's where the waste dump goes. That's where the nuclear facility gets put. And that is putting the health, well-being, and economic opportunity of those communities at greater and greater risk. 
Um, so in, in many parts of, of the environmental movement, you see folks trying to focus in on things like uh, toxic waste in communities, the disposal of, of garbage and, and, and all the location of industrial waste producing activities. How do we make sure that that's not all ending up only where poor and the disempowered live? The other side of it that's interesting to me is that, yeah, at a certain point, Working in the charitable sector is a privilege in and of itself because, you know, we don't get paid the same amount as people in the corporate sector get paid. So if you've come from a community where you've had to struggle very, very hard to pay for an education and to get yourself qualified to go into the work world at an elevated you know, pay scale, why would you choose the least well-paid option and, and go to work there when you could actually put the, all the hard work and all the investment of your community and your family into a, a much better financial return? So I think, you know, there is a lot to what you said that the protection of pretty places is very much a wealthy person's concern. Um, I even think that that's not necessarily even really environmentalism sometimes. Mm, I, I think yeah. you named it correctly as protectionism. Um, you know, I take the Okanagan, you know, a lot of people there want pretty lakes, but they want them so they can zoom around on ski boats and, and, you know, have their second homes, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily in and of itself an environmentally conscious thing. And, and so, you know, you do have that element where protection of what seems like wilderness and beauty um, is maybe much more down on the end of the spectrum of, of the well-off. I think that environmental groups and, and environmental activists are starting to look at the intersectionality of things a lot more and to realize that we have a system that is designed to oppress both people and nature. And it's a fallout of, of the same mentality that we clear-cut log, we do the tar sands the way we do them, and we have communities where only poor people live who are from you know, non-European backgrounds. And, and, and that's all a very similar mindset that has to be taken down. So it does create hopefully more opportunity, uh, but it makes things way more complicated too. You know? uh, and even in, the, even in the side of like big protected areas, I've been really rethinking protected areas and parks because if you talk to a lot of indigenous people, that was their territory. And our society took it largely because we can't control ourselves everywhere else. We chew up the places where we choose to put industry and then we put some nice places where people can go have a nice time or where we can feel better because we protected the bears. Um, but we go gung-ho everywhere else and we trash it. And, you know, indigenous people are like, we lived in all of that and we didn't trash any of it. You know, they have a much different mindset around Again, it's almost back to what I said about the David Suzuki Foundation at the beginning. People are nature. We need to be able to live in nature. And that sometimes means using nature, whether that's hunting or fishing or taking trees to build with or, or whatever it is. But that understanding of doing it in a way where we don't nuke the place, that's the piece that is often missing. So if you only have perfect, pristine parks where the people can go have a nice time and get a good view and then you just trash everything else, we're not gonna have sustainability. We're gonna have so many people who need resources that we're just gonna end up trashing everything. If we can reset the way we think to take care of people and planet, mm. I don't know, maybe we get a longer shot at it. Mm. And it's, all, it's almost that concept, like if we're taking care of people, people and people are taking care of themselves from a well-being perspective. I mean, like, especially now, exercise and activity is happening outside. Yeah. 
I know yeah. like bike sales, camping, yeah. material, like everything going through the roof because people are getting outside and taking, it's part of their active lifestyle as well. And because of that, that sense of care is more prolific for them. Yeah. To me, that's that, that sense of care is a huge, huge thing. Like, especially with young people, really young, you know, you can't start teaching them about the world's about to end when they're eight. <laughs> you have to first get them out in the environment and, and have them just develop a love of being outdoors and a love of nature and a bit of an understanding and connection to it. And I think from an education perspective, we could reallocate resources to doing that across all communities in Canada. And, and you would start to have a bit more demand for uh, a better way of running our business in relation to nature, I think. At that point, you know, we wouldn't concentrate all the nastiness in one place and, and we wouldn't, you know, do this, such a scorched earth kind of approach to things. Maybe that's what I hope. And then you would be helping people get access to better, healthier environments for themselves mm -hmm. and their families too. When we talk about, um, you know, people with purpose driven careers, and especially people who have ended up in positions of leadership, there's often these make or break moments for us where it was either a conversation that really stuck or it was an opportunity you were able to capitalize on. This conversation, this instant, and I could have like left it, but I took it. And yeah. because of that, I was able to excel, whether that was in a career or with a, with a goal for purpose, drive for impact. Do you have any moments like that for you that stand out? I, I feel like life is a series of those moments. You know, I have in my role, I have the opportunity to do what people call informational interviews, where people will be in a graduate program and they'll come and they'll say, oh, well, how do I get from here to there? And I had no idea how I got here. It was an accident. <laughs> but, but I had that sense always that these series of things mattered to me. Um, and when the opportunity came to work on one of them, I would try to take it. And even if it wasn't the best paying thing, I would always try to just give it as much as I could, like just give her, get in, take the opportunity, work hard at it. And when people notice that, which they do, um, take the next opportunity. And so for me, there were, um, as a child, I had some really strong experiences with growing up near the coal mining areas of Southern Ohio and seeing areas that had been you know, like total denuded hillsides that had been stripped mined, and then all of the streams coming out of there were yellow with sulfur and you could put a probe in and there was zero oxygen, right? Like as a, I remember going on these field trips as an elementary school kid, it was like zero oxygen in this water. And then I, as my, my grandparents lived uh, near Lake Erie. And so I, I spent lots of time on Lake Erie as a kid and watching you know, watching dead ducks and fish wash up on the shore and these mats of horrific algae um, that grew because of the total contamination of the water there. Um, one of the rivers in Cleveland, Ohio caught on fire. It was so polluted when I was a kid and that river went right into Lake Erie. Um, Sorry, the river caught on fire. Yeah, it, the, it was, there, was a, there was a band called the Pretenders, Chrissy Hine, late, late 1970s, early 80s she wrote a song about it uh yeah. and it was you know my city is gone and the burning river and it was the cuyahoga river caught on fire because of all the oil and, and petroleum product contaminants that were in it there was a fire on land and it spread to the water and the entire river you know 
big section of the river was burning. So that, you know, that has a pretty strong impression on a young mind. So those were moments, those were moments for me that I was too young to say this is a career opportunity, but they, they stuck in me with the fact that I grew up in a rural area where I spent all of my time outdoors. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, I was studying and doing a science degree, but I kept having these opportunities to work on something political. And every time it really felt right to me and I, I just go for it. I've never been one of those people who could plan a career from now till five years from now. I just, my brain doesn't work that way, but I know what is really important to me. And I know what things, like I know if you want to change something, you know, you can work in politics, you can work in science, you can work in government, you can work in business. But if you want to make change, you have to be able to see that moment where, hey, this could be done differently. And then figuring out that way that you can convince the people who have the power to make that change. Like I can change the way the David Suzuki Foundation does things. But like we talked about earlier, I can't by myself change the way a corporation or a government does things. Mm -hmm. But over time, I've learned, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm working in a landscaping company and my boss could really be saving a lot of time if we did this differently. How do I make that proposal without putting that person's back up or making them feel like, you know, I'm out for their job or whatever? Um, you know, likewise, if I'm in, a, I worked in Alaska in, in the salmon and halibut fisheries for years. And, you know, I rose up through that pretty quickly just because I worked hard. I tried not to be the hardest guy to get along with. And I, I would try to find those times when like, hey, we could do this better. What do you think? And, um, and, and you just get a, it's almost like you develop a habit for it of, of finding positive ways to make people feel like they're doing things better mm. in what they've already been doing. And to me, that is one of those traits that has helped me a lot. Um, you know, it just, it's not being the most powerful person in the room but being the person who's willing to come up with an idea, propose it in a non-threatening way, and then put in a bunch of work to make it happen. Mm, and kind of bringing those intersections together. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the diversity of tactics and yeah. also just acknowledgement, like a really humble acknowledgement that like, we don't need to work together, but I understand your role and I understand how your yeah. role is allowing me to do my work. And yeah. especially with the intersections of activism and say community investment or, yeah um, corporate policy development. It's like that. I believe in this and I believe in what we're doing, but I appreciate and understand that you had to do the, that work first in order yeah. for me to prioritize and in order for me to go to the powers that be and to help, um, communicate it in a way that isn't threatening and that makes yeah. sense to this business as well. And so, yeah, I, I really, I really agree with that. Um, how do you deal with not, and any purpose driven work, like I, I burnt out really hard when I was 19, which is like hilarious because I was 19. <laughs> I, I used the excuse of I'm going back to school, but in reality, like I got, I had developed anxiety and I got really depressed and yeah. it was because I, I really overdid, like I overdid that passion for the work and I yeah. dove head first into it. How do you deal with not getting dejected or burnt out? How do you deal with not getting jaded in that? Or, totally in that jaded. But totally I decided a long time ago that it, it didn't matter, right? Because the only thing I know how to do is to say, I care about this, I want to make it better, and I've only got so much time on the planet. So I'm just going to keep doing that. Because if I didn't, you know, you can't run the experiment, what would happen 
if I didn't ever try to make the world different? Um, would it be better? Would it be worse? We'll never know. But I can keep trying because that's the only thing I've got to do. You know, I, I, I can stop and just go someplace and make some money. But I know myself, I've had jobs where I was just at the job because I needed a job and I eventually get bored. In terms of the kind of the, the depression or the jadedness that kind of drags you down, I have a couple of things. I went through that phase myself where the work was everything and was my life. And, and I did start to burn out and I separated from that a little bit. And, and I said, I'm, I'm going to need to have some boundaries. I'm going to need to care about other things besides just this, which I do. I love ultimate Frisbee. I love being on the water, hiking. I, I love playing games with my friends, like totally frivolous stuff that is got nothing to do with saving anything. Like, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's been plenty of zombies who have died at my hand, let me tell you. No. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, and, and so I maintain playfulness, right? I love music. I, I try to have other things that matter to me. Uh, I do the work because I want those other parts of my life to continue being good. But, you know, there's the old, old saying, like, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, right? It's just like, mm -hmm. if there's not a way to have fun and to have joy and to celebrate the other people around you, and I live in a beautiful place, you know, there doesn't seem to be much purpose to being around to me if you can't also make the, and it's, it's hard, right? Because it's easy to get depressed mm -hmm. about the state of the world. If that's the only thing you think about, mm -hmm. the trick is just make yourself think about something else. Just do, you know, there's been plenty of counseling under the bridge that's helped along the way. And I really, I know people with mental health problems that are not just, you think your way out of it, right? I don't want to ever diminish that. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, having other things that you care about that give you something um, and that make you laugh and that are frivolous and don't matter that much, they actually do matter quite a bit. And what about, like I said in my email to you yesterday, when I was working through our conversation, and something you'd said is um, nature will take care of itself. It's more a matter of humans exist. Yeah. And I honestly, that is one of the things that it's maybe not that comforting to other people. It's maybe some people who are religious would get that kind of comfort from, you know, thinking about an afterlife or something that that's not my belief. But for me, it's like this planet will go on in some way or another. Uh, it may be that the cockroaches and the seagulls get the whole bit and, and that's just the way it goes. But to me, we're, we're full of kind of ourselves as human beings. We do tend to think that we are going to make or break everything and that everything revolves around the way that we choose to do things. Uh, maybe it's a fault in my brain, but I just don't think that way. I, I really do see this entire universe around us as a living thing that's going to go on. Uh, you know, nuclear war used to freak me out more than most anything because it did seem like that existential opportunity where humans could actually toast the entire planet. Um, but even then, you know, I think something is going to survive. Something is going to go on. And that somehow gives me some comfort to know maybe we don't get it together as human beings. And, and in five generations, it's almost impossible for humans to live on this planet. Oh, well, you know, I, I guess it's, it's, it, we know enough to know that that's possible. And if we don't do what it takes to get around that, then, you know, you get what you pay for is I guess the, the phrase. Well, and I love it because it's for 
especially I come from a fundraising background and I work, uh, I worked in the health space. So I did, you know, fundraising for children's health or yeah. it's, like the, it's the topics that are easy to fundraise for because everybody resonates with children's health and health in general, right? Cancer yeah. research, like it's easy because everyone, no one wants to see other people dying. I like what you said because it makes it palatable because there's a connection and a resonance there, right? When you're saying, the world is going to go on regardless. It's about human life. For some reason, this connection of, and it's anything that people perceive as radical, that's not self-serving. Yeah. It brings it back to, to being self-serving, frankly. It says like, look, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, yes, it's about the planet and yes, it's about ensuring yeah. that it goes on, but it's also about making sure that we have a life here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you really do care about your children and grandchildren, then you you want not just for them to have, you know, the material well-being to take care of themselves immediately, but you want them to live in a beautiful world where they can... Breathe clearly in their backyard. I mean, there's plenty of post-apocalyptic films out there to uh, to make you think about what it could be like if we don't get it together. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking about one. They redid Blade Runner, the movie. They made Blade Runner 2049. I can't remember what the exact number was they put on it. But I remember a scene where a guy had to go from outdoors to indoors and he had to stop in an airlock and be decontaminated. And, then, and just like... Oh, yeah. So this whole pandemic thing is happening. Like we could push ourselves to a world where we're just going from one technologically mediated space to another, having, you know, chemicals around us to just keep us alive all the time. And it'd probably work. You know, we'd probably find a way to make people keep plugging away. Yeah. But man. Compared to what we are able to experience now, it's a poorer place and it's a place that I'd rather not get to. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we would probably take a lot of other life forms down with us, which I also have a, a fundamental opposition to doing that. It's that hope that that's not the innovation that's required of us. Yeah. I'd rather that we back off of nature. We let it have its space. We let it regain its health. We start to understand you know, how much people can consume and in how many places before we've pushed things too far. And, and we start to, you know, kind of think and work that way. You know, our, our societies in North America, we have way fewer children than we used to, but we've overamped the consumption off the charts, right? And, and so we've got to try and find that place where, you know, nobody wants to talk about population control. And I think that's a, you know, subject we definitely do not need to go into. But somewhere between there being too many people and all those people consuming way too much, you know, we're all, a, most of the time, adults make a choice about having children. Uh, and we can start to think about that as, as part of what do we want for the future? We want mm -hmm. people who can have what they need to live a good life and continue to pass it on to their kids. And mm -hmm. to me, that's, you know, that's about as human centric as I want to get. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's super interesting because also it, it's really that con conversation of like consumers, like how much we're consuming. I mean, yeah, you're right. We don't want to get into population control, but like the other side of it is if you're consuming enough for 15 people, then that 15 people did 30 years ago, is that yeah. where we want to be? Yeah, no. And, you know, we had a really conscious decision as Western society after World War II, we decided to create a consumer economy to bring the world back up out of the economic disaster mm -hmm. of the world wars. And, you know, it worked really well. The fifties, sixties, seventies were just these incredible boom times and people, you know, not very many people alive remember what it was like before that. 
And now we're at a position where we've just had another really major globally significant adjustment um, and, and we're going to have more choices to make. And so I do worry, like nobody wants to get on public transit right now. Nobody wants to take a reusable bag or a reusable coffee cup. Everyone's giving you throwaway items because they don't want to have to worry about catching something. And we could either set ourselves back a couple of decades on environmental progress, or we could start to say, okay, how do we redesign this in a much smarter way? There are so many smart people out there coming out of, you know, engineering schools, architecture schools, urban design, product design, people who have the smarts to create the stuff that we need to live a decent quality of life, mm -hmm. but with a much lighter, lighter footprint. The trick is it can't just be, oh, look how much more efficient we've got. Now we can do more of it. And that's what's tended to happen as, as they, there's a term for it in economics. We just get better at it, so we use up more. We have to get better at it as a way to use less, that reduce. We're back to that reduce is the first thing there. <laughs> when you think about, last question before I let you go, because I've already taken up so much of your time, is when you think about legacy for you, what does that mean for you, like in your career? Yeah. Well, there's been some things that we've achieved that, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of. Like, uh, you know, we've really changed the way that, you know, salmon farming happens in the Pacific. It's not totally fixed yet, but instead of growing to five times the size it was going to be and, and really wiping out uh, healthy areas for young wild salmon, we've, we've significantly put a break on that. Um, we've seen forestry change dramatically in different parts of, of the country. So I think of those things as legacies, like those specific changes that were made. But I also think about the people that I've helped bring up in through this work and the people that I've met, the relationships that I've developed. And I hope the opportunities that I've given to other people who have ideas that I never had. For me, that is a huge part of the legacy is to have created space for other really talented people to get going when maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't have. I don't know. I don't want to take credit for other people's work, but I think I have pushed down some barriers and, and opened up some opportunities for people. So yeah, if I've contributed to that in the long run, yeah, that'll be good. Jay, thank you so much for your time today. And I so enjoyed getting to know you in our conversation and I can't wait to keep following your career. Well, thanks so much. And it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. I really hope our paths continue to cross. You too. All right. Take care, Rebecca.